All right, well, good morning, everyone. If you would, go ahead and turn to the letter of 1 Peter. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. For those of you who are visiting, I've been teaching on 1 Peter for a little while now, and um, we've been looking at Peter's instruction to the believers that are scattered across Asia. And in the first verses of Peter, he calls them exiles. And uh, early on, I sort of tried to give some sort of title to these messages. But uh, the, the sense I, I got as I read First Peter was that it was following Jesus as exiles. And that may sound simple, but um, it took me a while to think of that. Partly because I wanted to really capture sort of the fundamental essence of what Peter was all about. And it's about the Lord Jesus. It's about how he lived his life, and the fact that we are going to pattern our own lives after him. It's an interesting concept. You know, Jesus early on tells his disciples to follow me. Well, I mean, you knew what it was like to do that in the first century, right? You actually walk behind a 30-year-old Jewish guy, right? But Jesus obviously meant more than that. And what does he mean by that? Well, he means you actually pattern your life and your words and your thinking after mine. And if you do that, you will be exiles. You will be people that will be marginalized, ostracized. You will be people who Jesus says, I mean, you will be hated, right? That will happen. All because you follow Christ. And Peter's letter comes to these people in Asia that are born again by the Spirit of God, that are now starting to follow Jesus, and they're experiencing some measure of, of pressure. And he's, he, is, he, is, he is by the Spirit of God encouraging them, exhorting them, reminding them about glorious truths so that they will be faithful to the Lord Jesus and that they will continue to remember that this is not their home. You know, it's very important, isn't it, to remember over and over that for us here, um, this is not our home. And we certainly feel that way I think I was just talking to Deb about this. The world around us now, especially in America and in the West, feels like it's just all shaking up, right? Every, everything's so unstable, uncertain. Make no mistake about it, it's all from the Lord. And he's doing it for lots of different reasons. One of the reasons, though, is to just continue to test his people, right? Can, to continue to, to reveal where their allegiances really lie. And, um, and that is one of his purposes. It's actually a very loving purpose for him to do this, to shake us loose of this maybe unhealthy allegiance and, and connection to this world. Um, it's going to pass away. Uh, even America is going to pass away. And so we are exiles here, and Peter is wanting to encourage and remind us of who we really are, of those identity markers that will actually transcend this present evil world on into the next These things that we're talking about this morning, these identity markers, are things that characterize us forever. And so let's look at them again together this morning. So we'll we'll just look at verse 9 and 10 again. Peter says here, in contrast to those who are disobedient to the word, Peter says, but you, believers in Asia, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All right, let's pray. Father, it is um, so clear that you have done this work in our lives. Um, Lord, as we look at the world, busy about their own things, busy about... um, I don't know, trying to expend their own efforts for their own security for the future um, as they uh, continue to strategize and be anxious and, um, I don't know, Lord, just uh, reveal that they live only for this world. Lord, we just, we, just, we just know in ourselves that that's who we would be if you didn't reveal yourself to us. We would be anxious, we would be fretting, we would be frantic, wondering how it was all going to pan out in the end for us. But Lord, you have shown us in your word, by your spirit, that our hope is secure. That in the future, there is laid up for us a crown of righteousness, uh, which you, the righteous judge, will award us on that day as we persevere. So Lord, thank you for that hope. Lord, help us now as we live in this world, as exiles, as strangers, pilgrims, to really just remember who we are, to put on these, these, these precious terms um, that you have given us every day, that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Help us to remember that from your perspective, that's who we are. From the world's perspective, maybe we look silly, maybe we look foolish, uh, maybe we look naive, maybe we look, uh, um, I don't know, Lord, not in touch. But Lord, we know that from your perspective, we are holy. From your perspective, we are precious. Um, from your perspective, we're on the right track. And so Lord, always, always help us to remember that at all times. And as we do that, you will be useful to you. And uh, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so a little bit of review Last week, we looked at the first identity marker there as chosen race. Well, looked at the last part of that. The idea that we are the chosen race, and we observe that this term race in the scriptures describes three groups, you could say. The first is the human race. The second is the race of different ethnicities, which the Bible talks about. Certainly, it doesn't Um, teach at all that there are inferior versus superior races or anything like that. But it does point out the fact that there are different races, and by that he just means different people groups, separated by geography and genealogy. That's what the scriptures mean there. The Syrophoenician woman, he says, was of the Syrophoenician race. Barnabas was of Cyprian race. Those kinds of terms are used in the scriptures. And then the third thing we looked at was the fact that there is a third group of of the third category, if you will, in the scriptures defined by race, and it's the chosen race. Right? So you've got the human race, different ethnicities underneath the human race, but then even underneath that is the chosen race. And that's who we are in Jesus Christ. We are the chosen race. Um, and the chosen race um, are not chosen, we're not a chosen race because of our geographic location, social class, skin color, or language. But we are a distinct race because of God's electing love. And this is realized through our conversion and filling with the Holy Spirit. 
All the elect of God are, are called of God in history and transformed by his spirit into new people. And this is the, this is the stock of God's chosen people. They are transformed, right? They have new loves and new hates, right? The new loves they have are for Jesus Christ, for his truth, for his people, and, the, and a compassion for sinners they didn't have before. And they have new hates, right? A new, a new hate for, for sin, for unrighteousness, for unbelief, right? For the devil himself. This is the new, this is the new, uh, the new desires of God's elect race. That's, that's the stuff we're made of. And this is how they are known. Not by geography, not by race, right? Not by skin color, not by social class, but by transformed hearts. That's the elect race. Then we looked at the second identity marker, which was royal priesthood. And we saw in the Old Testament that the, te- the two themes of royalty and priesthood were first brought together explicitly with Melchizedek. Now, I say explicitly because, and I thought about this later, you know, you do have some echoes of royalty and, I don't know if I even want to say priesthood, but you've got something going on with Adam in the beginning, right? God tells him to subdue the earth, you know, rule over the fish and over the birds. And this language of rule, it's really close to kingship, isn't it? So I don't want to go so far as to say as Adam was a king priest. You know, I think that's, that's popular in, this, in, this, in the biblical theological circles, and I understand why they do it. But I do think that there are elements there that are developed over the Bible where you do begin to see some of that stuff uh, characterized, like I say, firstly, in Melchizedek, who's flat out called a priest and a king, who's servant of God Most High, or priest of God Most High. But, but, but there could be some stuff there, too, with Adam. But, but anyway, um, but, but we looked at Melchizedek, bringing in this idea that, that he is a priest of God Most High and a king of righteousness, right? This, these two aspects. When you get to the law... Right? It's only the, the, the family of Aaron that can be priests. But then you get to David, and David actually starts to function like a priest. There are various things that he does in his own life. He brings the ark into Jerusalem. He's there wearing the linen ephod. He's making sacrifices. These kinds of things. And so here you have David, not from the tribe of Levi, from the tribe of Judah, functioning as a king, yes, but also with a pri- as a priest. And then ultimately we know that this is fully realized in who? The Lord Jesus, right? The Lord Jesus is King of Kings, right? The Lion of Judah, the Root of Jesse, Son of David, and he is also a high priest. And, uh, and he brings these things together. And um, there's this a- idea now that because of who he is, he has made us to be now a royal priesthood, Right? That because we are united to him, we are connected to him, now, now he has made us royalty. And he has made us those who have access to him. So this is really, really important. So what does this imply? Well, it implies that we have authority, right? We have authority and we have dignity. Right? As a royal priesthood, we have royalty and, and we have authority and we have dignity. Regarding authority, the scriptures reveal that when we know Jesus Christ, we have his authority at our back. Authority to even do the miraculous, if he wills. Authority to bind and loose things on earth and in heaven. Authority against principalities and powers. 
And when we pray, we exercise this authority, and even Satan's firm grip can be destroyed over the unbeliever and can be freed. You know, Jesus had to come in and destroy the devil. Why? Because we can't. Right? We're not strong enough. But the Lord Jesus is. He's the stronger man, isn't he? And Jesus gives this authority now. He vests us, he, he vests us with, with, with his authority. And he, he vests us with this authority that he even gives his disciples. You know, they go out and they have this authority to, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to, to those kinds of things. How are they able to do that? Well, because they were a part of the royal family. And Jesus Christ gives them authority. Even Satan's firm grip can be destroyed over the unbeliever as we pray and as we exercise our our Christ-given authority over principalities and powers. As having Christ's authority as well, as being part of this royal priesthood, we also have the heavenly right to go anywhere in this world proclaiming the gospel with boldness. Jesus says all authority in heaven and earth is given given, given to him, and therefore we go. Right? We go anywhere, knowing that we have every right to be there. Um, you know, I was just thinking about Jeff and Dylan and, and, and others going door to door. What I try to tell them every time, you know, and try to tell myself is when I'm going onto their, this people's front doorstep, we have every right to be there. With love, with wisdom, with meekness, with boldness, but we have every right because Jesus told us so. Right? And we have his authority. We have his authority to go, to be proactive, to go, and to seek these people out to proclaim his truth. But we also have this idea because we are a royal priesthood. We also see this idea in the scriptures of reigning with Christ in this world. We reign in life, right? As we preach the word and we live this life, all things are working for our good. We reign in life. All our efforts to spread his gospel come, come with Jesus' own authority and power. Right? Um, nothing is wasted for us. Paul can say, all things are yours. That's quite a statement. All things? Yeah, all things are yours. And then also we reign in death. Right? We even reign in death. Seems paradoxical, right? Seems like if you're, if you're, if you're a king, it's a failure if you die <laughs> uh, at the hands of the enemy per se, but not for us. Even in death, there is this, I, this reality that God uses it for his glory and for his purposes. And, and for us, death is just a temporary state of affairs, isn't it? It's just a, it's just a doorway into, into the presence of our Lord Jesus. And this is why the book of Revelation speaks of those who, who reign in death in Revelation chapter 20. And then as a royal priesthood, we also have profound dignity. We are royalty after all. We serve King Jesus directly. And all the shame that the world wants to dish out to us, just like they did to him, we can despise and reject because we know who we are. We are a part of the king's house. So, royal priesthood. This morning we're going to look at holy nation and and see how far we get. But let's look at this together. So your chosen race, royal priesthood, and a holy nation. Now, I don't know how popular the whole idea of holiness is, in the church at the moment. It's hard for me to keep up with all the fads and trends. But I do know that it's pervasively biblical um, that, that the church of Jesus Christ is a holy people. Think about Israel. God first pronounces this on them, right? Did they fulfill it? No, not even close. Right? They did not fulfill this, this role. But it's clear in Scripture that holiness 
is one, one aspect, one critical aspect of who we are as believers. We are a holy nation. Now, the term holy, most of you know, means what? Right? Set apart or separate. But I wonder how many of you know sort of the other aspect to it. It's set apart, which is true, but as it pertains to believers, it's set apart for God's use. So I think that's an important distinction. Right? It's set apart for God's use. So set apart from what? Well, certainly we'd have to say set apart from the world. Right? Set apart from sin. I think that's clear. A holy person is a person that has had a decisive break with sin. Right? Peter talks about this if you look in chapter 1. Starting in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Right? So Peter gives a heavy emphasis on the holiness of the Christian in chapter 1. In this text here, Peter commands the believers to not be conformed to lust to the lust that they had when they were unbelievers. He says to your former, when you, when you were not a Christian, don't be conformed to this lust. What does this assume? This assumed that there's going to be a pressure to conform to the lusts that are there, right? It assumes that. That's why he has to tell you to not be conformed, right? They're going to want to press you into its mold. Back into those old patterns of thinking, right? Looking at things that you shouldn't thinking on things that you shouldn't, and then behaving in ways that you shouldn't. Right? These lusts, these desires that are fleshly, that are self, self-seeking, self-focused, whatever it is, immoral lust, sexual immoral lust, or anger, these kinds of things, Peter says, do not be conformed to these things. But in contrast, like the Holy One who called you, be holy. So you see what he's saying. You can't call yourself a holy person if you're conformed to lust, right? That's what he's saying. Don't, Peter is saying, look, if you want to be a holy person, right, it has to do with how you regard sin. You, you know, if you're someone who, who is not dead set against mortifying sin and abstaining from fleshly lusts and, and, and those kinds of things, then there's a real question here as to where holiness is even real for you. Be holy. Be consciously striving against that sin. Be aware. Um, be aware. I was talking with James about this on the way to church this morning. We were both just sort of talking about the fact of, you know, we, we feel like with Paul, a wretched man that I am, almost daily, you know, you just feel that. But we were talking about the fact, too, that that's really important, right? It's, it's good to feel that way. It's good to know the danger of sin. It's good to know the ongoing reality of indwelling sin. And it's important to know that because if you don't know that, it'll overtake you. Right? And the one who's been overtaken, it's hard to know. Do they know that they're overtaken? Probably not. So we cannot be conformed to these former lusts. And, and as we aren't, we are living like our Father. 
Peter sort of grounds his, his ultimate incentive to be holy because God himself is holy. Right? That's what he says. Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves. Right? Be holy because God is holy. Um, we live holy lives because, yes, sin is destructive. Right? It brings destruction in its wake. It brings death. But fundamentally, we live holy lives because our God is holy. Be holy yourselves. Why? Because God is holy. In other words, when we fall into sin and lust and unbelief and doubt and these kinds of things, we are the farthest we can be from the character and likeness of God. God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Right Before there was even the law of Moses, there was God and those made in His image. And mankind was to reflect and resemble the Lord in every way. And now as believers, of course, we have the power to reflect Him, to resemble Him rightly in this world because of the Spirit. But, but being holy, walking in the light, is like, our, is like our God. So as believers, we're not dedicated sinners like the world like we used to be, when the Spirit sets us apart, makes us holy, we have a new relationship with sin. No longer at peace with it. But, like I said, this isn't the only aspect of being holy. It's not only about being separate from sin. That's true. But there's a reason that we should be separate from sin. Certainly to be like our Lord, but ultimately so that we're useful to the Lord. That's this other aspect. It's set apart to be useful to the Lord. So think about it for a second. In the Old Testament, you have lots of items there that are called holy. You actually have items there that aren't people that are called holy. Right? Tabernacle furniture was called holy. The ark was called holy. The certain utensils in the tabernacle were called holy. The garments of the priests were said to be holy. So, so we can't just say that it's free from sin, period, and that's all you need to say about holiness. There's something more going on here, right? The tent of meeting was said to be holy. Those kinds of things. The Sabbath day was called holy. So what's going on there? So what's going on here is that these are items that are put in use for the Lord's worship and service. That's what makes them holy, right? I mean, the same fabric that made up the priest's garments were probably present in other people's clothes, right? But because they were shaped and fashioned and made particularly for the priest, and the priest was the one who wore them, well, then they were used for, for God's service and worship. And this is, an important, this is an important point to make. These are not common things. These are holy things. I think it's important for you to remember about yourself. You are holy to the Lord. You are not your own. You're set apart for Him. You're set apart from Him. You're not set apart. You're You're not to live your life in the things for which Christ died. You're set apart to be used by him. So listen to Paul in 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21. He brings these two together. 2 Timothy 2. 
Now, Paul, obviously talking to Timothy, firstly here, young pastor, giving him instructions as to how he's to regard words, teaching, what you give your conversations to in chapter 2, verse 14. Remind them of these things, that is, these fundamentals of the gospel. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. See, it matters what leaders and it matters what Christians go on and on about, right? What they go on and on about in terms of their speculation of the times or, or uh, this or that speculative theology in the Bible or, or whatever it is, there are certain things that are actually useless to talk about. And Paul tells Timothy, make sure you don't go down the road of just useless discussion that leads to the ruin of the hearers. Well, how does that happen? Well, I don't know. There's probably lots of different ways that happens. But when you get people all worried and frantic and carried away by things that are speculation rather than things that are plainly rooted in the Scriptures, well, you can get people that are really concerned about the same things the world is or, or, uh, or just in a world of uncertainty. Paul says, verse 15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handing the word of truth. See, that's what Paul said. Paul says, invest your whole brain and mind and will and effort, be diligent to get in the scriptures so that you can present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. See, this is in contrast. You want to be able to know the truth but not just to know it, but to handle it well, right? To handle it. it the idea of a, of a surgeon, right, with a scalpel. You, you've got to know not only what the scalpel is, you also know, have to know where to make the cut and when not to make the cut. <laughs> All kinds of things there, but you've got to know the scriptures, and this is what genuinely will help people. And this, this, this must be the work of Certainly, every pastor, leader, but also believers, right? We have to understand that we are presenting our, our conclusions about the Scriptures to God. And we don't want to be embarrassed, right? We don't want to be talking with someone and then start spouting off all the speculation and you find out later, all that was wrong. Oh, that's embarrassing, Right? And it could be damaging. It could lead people astray. So he says, look, you, you study, get it all right first in the closet. And then you come out and speak it. And if you don't have it right, you're not convinced of it, keep quiet. It matters what you say. It matters that it's rooted in the truth of God's word. And he goes on to say it, verse 16, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene green, Not good. And among them he names names, or Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and they upset the faith of some. Doctrine matters. Right? You go around saying stupid stuff about the resurrection that's not rooted in the scriptures. You will upset the faith of people. This is about the souls of men. 
Verse 19, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having, set, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. And here's where I was getting, verse 20. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Right? Two weeks in a row, I'm going to use a Downton Abbey illustration. It just, it just works here, right? A big house. That house is a big house, right? They've got the beautiful grand dining rooms and living rooms where they bring out all their nice pretty stuff, right? And then they've got the servants' quarters. Stuff down there is a little bit more, uh, what would you say, common, earthy, those kinds of things. Well, you wouldn't bring, you know, the servants' wooden bowls up to feed, you know, the local or the regional duke or whatever it is, right? You have certain vessels that you're going to bring out in certain company, right, for certain honorable use. And then you've got others, that aren't. And don't, please don't take my illustration too far with the servants and the royalty and all that. But, but Paul is making the point. Paul is making the point that there are, there are vessels that are useful for glorious, honorable purposes and some that aren't. Right? And then he says in verse 21, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor. Sanctified, useful to the master. Prepared for every good work. What things is he to cleanse himself from? Speculation. Empty chatter. Worldly speech. These kinds of things. What does he mean by worldly speech? Well, all the stuff that the world is just on and on about. Do you have a category for worldliness in your mind? What are the things that characterize your speech? Well, if it's just worldly, and it's just concerned with the things of this life, you're not going to be that useful to the Lord, are you? You're not going to be very salty. You're certainly not going to shine very bright. But if you cleanse yourself from those things, that's a wonderful thing too, right? He doesn't just say, well, you're done. You know, if, if, if this characterizes you at all, then there's no hope. Moving on. He doesn't say that. He says you can cleanse yourself from these things. So that's a wonderful thing. God is merciful, so you can cleanse yourself from this. If you've given yourself to all of that worldly empty chatter, all that speculation, then you're not as useful. But if you do, if you cleanse yourself from these things, you can be useful to the Lord. And it's, and it's another way of saying, you know, having His truth just so saturating you then you are useful to the master, prepared for every good work. You are sanctified, he says. Sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. And every genuine believer can do this. Right? This is not about, I mean, certainly Paul has in mind here pastors first. But the usefulness of Timothy can be realized in the same way it's realized for us. In the truth, in the scriptures. That's how you can be useful to the Lord. The truth is a big deal. Speaking the truth is a big deal. Might get you a black eye in this day and age, but it's still useful. It's what the Lord uses to bring about life. It's always been the case, right? God's always used his word to bring about life. And I can't emphasize that enough. You know, we can't ever get to the point to where we think as a people here that we've got some stuff figured out and therefore we don't need to continue to saturate our minds in the text. No, we absolutely do. Right? We absolutely do. All right. There's another aspect of holiness, though, that I think that's, that's good to focus on. 
something we don't think about that much. Holiness is tied to love. You know, usually when we think about being holy, we think about obeying commands, and that is true. We think about abstaining from sin, and that is true. But Paul holds out love as that key mechanism to actually living a holy life. Now, where does he do that? 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. This is Paul's prayer right in the middle of his letter. Listen to how he prays. So if you're thinking about, like, as a church, we want to be holy. Right? Again, what comes into your mind? Rigid, austere, you know, cold, holy. Or is it warmth? Right? Affection. Seeking out the good of others. That, that's Paul's, God's version of holiness. Now let's see how that's worked out. Verse 11, chapter 3, 1 Thessalonians 3. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. So Paul knows that if we're going to make it to these people, it's going to be because God, God got us there. And... May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people. I don't think people is there in the original. I think it's just all. I could be wrong on that. Someone could check that. Forgot to look at that. But for all. Just as we also do for you. So when you're thinking about, what do I pray for my brethren? What do I pray? I pray that you have love. Not just love, abounding love. Love that's overflowing the cup. Right? Think about abounding love. Love that's abounding is a love that is so disinterested in itself and so interested in the good of others. That's when love is present. That's how you know when love is present. Abounding love is, 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 a, is found in, in a person that is, yeah, that, that, they're wanting to hear from others. They're wanting to pray for others. It's an abounding love, overflowing love for one another. And, so we get that though, like loving the saints. We get that. That's all through the New Testament. But what about sinners? Well, he says it, and for sinners. And for all people. He says, for all people, for all. We should have love for sinners. For all people. You know, I, I wasn't planning on saying this, but I had an encounter with a neighbor yesterday. It's a really frustrating encounter. <laughs> um, I won't take you into the long history of it, but it's very clear that he doesn't like his neighbors. He, he really doesn't. 
Um, and it's been tough because I've actually tried to reach out to him before to try to talk about why, but it's so clear and for lots of reasons. And yesterday he came and he came with some accusations about our kids and things like that. And, and it was hard for me to hear, frankly. And we walked together and I had some questions for him. And uh, it sort of caught me off guard. Um, and, you know, while I think some of my questions were justified, I was really stirred, provoked even, and, um, and, and frustrated. And my first inclination was not to really love this guy. <laughs> it was really just sort of put him in his place, to be honest. But later, as we were reflecting, and with the help of my wife, um, and while I don't think that I was in sin, Paige was reminding me of the better way. That we should pray for these people. That's the better way. Um, a worldly neighbor could confront this man and try to set him straight, right? But a Christian who's holy, trying to follow Jesus, is to be meek, right? And ultimately is to pray for those who hate you. Pray for those who despise you. I was like, yeah, yeah. I admit I didn't pray for him that day. We prayed for him this morning. And that's what I want to tell my kids. We pray for people like that. Right? Because ultimately the issue is not that he's right with me. right? It's not that he loves his neighbors. I'm not the point. His relationship with the God who made him is the point. That's the point. How are you going to be able to withstand the offenses of people around you? Family, friends, neighbors. By remembering that their relationship with you and their connection with you is not the point. Their battle is with the Lord. It's on you to love them. And when you love them, you set yourself apart because they're not expecting that kind of love. And that kind of kindness and love, well, it may actually get them thinking. Right? It really will. It really will. Love, abounding love for all people. Paul says, just as we do for you. Now now watch this in verse 13. Why do we have this abounding love for one another and for all? What's the purpose? Well, here it is. So that... He may, God may, establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. You want to be assured how you can live a holy life? Love people. Love people. Doesn't love fulfill the law after all? Isn't that the whole point? It does. You know, when we love, there are certain things that we will do and certain things we will not do. If we have love, we will not assume the worst about people. We will not immediately separate ourselves from them when they offend us. We will not turn away from their real needs. We will not slander them. We will not mistreat them. We will not hope for their harm. We won't lie to them. Children, if you really love your parents... 
you won't dis- disobey them when you love them. When you're loving your parents, you won't sneak behind their back to do something you know you shouldn't when you're loving your parents. Parents, we won't exasperate our kids with unreasonable demands if we love them. We won't try to control them with constant yelling if we love them. We certainly won't pawn them off to other family members to raise them while we indulge our lazy flesh if we love them. Husbands, we won't go weeks without asking our wives. How they are doing if we love them. We won't fail to pray with them if we love them. We won't seclude ourselves in our hobbies and in our shops while there is coldness between us and our spouse if we love our spouse. And wives, if you love your husbands, you respect them. Right? You'll regard them as the God-given head that they are in your home. Seek every opportunity to help them. You certainly won't try to get allies on your side because he did all this bad stuff. and You're trying to get allies on your side. right? You're not going to do that if you love them. And I know that there's a place for some discussion about what to do. And sometimes it's good for girls to be able to talk about that, but that just that can that can be a little tricky, can't it? But my point is, is that if we're going to be holy people, love has to be there. And if we have love, well, we will be blameless. And if we have love, there are things that we will do. We will seek out those that are struggling. We will pray for them. We will let them speak when they are bearing their hearts and not try to interrupt them with our own lives, right? We will meet needs. We will weep with them that weep. Children, when you're loving your parents, you will be seeking ways to pull your own weight. Clean up after yourselves. Do those little things that mom and dad, that really please mom and dad. When you're loving your parents, you'll listen to them when they talk to you. And parents, when you're loving your kids, you'll train them in the scriptures. Fathers especially. You will not leave this to your wife. You will take the reins to be proactive to make it happen. And Paul says that. Fathers, don't exasperate your children, but train them. That's what he says. Still with fathers in view. I know that in every instance that may be not possible. Maybe the father's not a believer or something like that. But... This is on us. If you're loving your family. Mothers, when you're loving your kids, and this can be said of fathers too, you're disciplining them regularly for their good. Right? Listen to this. He who spares the rod hates his son. Think of that. He who spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him, love, there it is, love, disciplines him or her diligently, continually. 
How does that work? People say, well, I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't discipline my son like that. I don't spank because, you know, I just, we, we don't do that kind of thing because, you know, I just, I don't feel like it's necessary or meanwhile the kids are running roughshod over their parents. Parents have no control. And parents are duped into thinking that this is loving to withhold discipline. It is not. It's selfish. The best thing you can do for your kids is to discipline them diligently. With love, but with consistency. The worst thing is the fly off the handle only trying to discipline with top, you know, top volume yelling. That, that is just not, it's discipline diligently and consistently this is, this is love. And it is so hard. But this is supernatural stuff anyway we're talking about. It. So we ask the Lord to help us, right? We all are desperate for help in this area. So please don't hear me say I've got it mastered. But you've got to know, you know what you're shooting for here, right? This is what love does. Love wants to help our children become who God wants them to be. And honestly, for kids in the room... Your parents love you, and this, even when they don't do it right, this, for the most part, this is what they're after. This is what they're after. And husbands, when you're loving your wife, you're meek with them, you're gentle with them, knowing that even a very slight word can cause them to crumble into grief. Watch your words. They're, they are weaker. And husbands, when you're loving your wife, you're trying to understand them, right? The female behavior and emotional patterns are not intuitive to us men. It takes real effort to understand, to know what will lift their spirits and give them encouragement. It takes real effort. Usually a real effort at personal touch and intimacy actually goes a long way. Most of you, have, most of you husbands in here know that. And wives, when you're loving your husbands, you'll be their helper in all things, family and house related. When you're out shopping, keeping a close eye on a budget with your husband in view, right? His heart trusts in her at all times. Even with the money. Even with what the kids are watching. With what the kids are listening to. If you're loving your husband, you're going to be paying attention to those things. Right? You'll be doing your part with the children, knowing that the mother has the critical role, a very critical role in the raising of the, of the children. When you're loving your kids, you're not going to be going to escape to find your real identity at the local gym or the coffee shop with your lady friends. Even though those times are fun, that's not, what you're, that's not where you seek your identity. Love. When you're loving your kids and your family, ladies, they're the focal point of your life, not your career, not your image, not your hobbies. Love. So, but as believers in general, when we're talking about being holy, 
as believers, we behave differently than the world, right? We don't fret in the way unbelievers fret. We don't flirt in the workplace. We don't use foul and perverse language. We don't work lazily looking for unethical shortcuts. We're holy. We are a holy nation. And certainly it doesn't mean that we're, we're perfect. Sometimes when we blow it in the workplace, it could be an opportunity for the gospel, actually. But there's nothing that can undermine the gospel quicker than hypocrisy. Right? And it really can. Saying you're a Christian but living a life of gossip... is so damaging. So, all right. So that's what I had on Be Holy. It says we're a holy nation. Holy nation. What a wonderful, what a wonderful idea that there's this, there's this nation, this entity, this, this group of people closely associated together that all share this status as holy. And as most of you know, the text originally applied to Israel after the Lord delivered them from slavery. Right, He gathered them around His holy mountain in the Old Testament, proclaimed that they were His treasured possession and His holy nation. Now up until this point in history, um, even in Peter's day, even in our own day, when we use the word nation, we mean something like a country with borders. Right? That's what you think of when you think of nation. And this would certainly include people, but it would also include geography, military, etc. So, for instance, in the Old Testament, Egypt was called a nation. So we're talking about people, military, borders, all those things. Certain place in, in Africa. But when the Lord uses it in First Peter, He's not primarily thinking anymore of ethnic geographic borders that will mark out the location of this nation, right? That's not what he's thinking anymore. He's thinking of people who have come from somewhere, people who have come from slavery, who are now redeemed, who belong to him. So my point is that while there's no geography in mind, there are borders still. There are those who are legal citizens, those who are outside this nation. The legal citizens of this nation are those delivered from slavery to sin. Those who have been brought out of sin to the Lord. This is the holy nation of the Lord. And as many of you know, I know I've said this a lot, it is so important to understand who he's talking about as a holy nation. He's talking about Christians. So while it may be true that the United States was established on Judeo-Christian principles, it never was a holy nation. Now maybe there was more holiness in the nation, because there were more Christians present years ago, but it wasn't a holy nation. No physical nation on this planet is a holy nation to the Lord. Israel is not a holy nation. Jerusalem is not a holy city anymore. The only holy nation there is on this planet is the one that is set apart to serve the Lord Jesus. 
The holy nation Peter speaks of is made up of Christians. Jew, Gentile, scattered throughout Asia. Do not fall into the trap of thinking that certain parts of the world are more holy than others. I still hear it in people. I went to the Holy Land. Now, if you're just saying that because people know that's Israel, I I get that. But if you think that there's actually... I hear people say, and the presence of God was just so much more thick over there, and I'm like... I don't know. I think that's dangerous. I think that actually misses the redemptive shift of the New Covenant and the fact that all of that Old Testament imagery is fulfilled in us. Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew 21, 43, talking to the Jews, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation, producing the fruit of it. The problem with people thinking that Israel, as an ethnic people, still have this place in God's heart, as as a nation, as an ethnic people, I'm not talking about the individual Jews that God is saving, that's true, but as an ethnic people, the, the problem with that is that there's no basis for it in the New Testament. Jesus just said, takes the kingdom of God away from them, and he gives it to a nation producing the fruit of it. Well, who is that? Well, he's talking about believers, aren't they? Isn't he? He's, he's, talking, about, he's talking about Jew-Gentile alike, but no longer just Israel in and of itself. The kingdom no longer belongs to them. It belongs to, to us. And certainly, again, Jews are in the kingdom, but the kingdom of God is made up of all nations. So here's a question. What nation are you more identified with? What nation are you more identified with? While I know that we are American citizens and we enjoy so much privilege and freedom that much of the rest of the world knows nothing of, this is just not our primary, primary identity. This is not. We are a holy nation. I'm not even sure that it's right to say that we are equally citizens of our heavenly country and our earthly country. You know what I mean? In a way that communicates equivalence. I don't think that's right. Matter of fact, the only time we see any emphasis on earthly citizenship at all is when Paul pulls it out to appeal to Caesar for the sake of getting the gospel to Rome. (laughs) People make so much hay out of Paul's citizenship. It's real, it's true, I'm not denying that. But even that he uses for the gospel. So please don't make those equivalent things. Paul didn't pull out his citizenship because he was a Roman patriot. I'm sure he appreciated many things about Rome, but that's not why he pulled it out. Peter, Paul, James, John, New Testament writers, locate our fundamental identity as being citizens of heaven, as Paul says, right? In Philippians 3. Holy nation, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2. James says, we are the 12 tribes dispersed, chapter 1. The writer of Hebrews says, we are those who are on Mount Zion. John says that we are the true Israel 
members of the kingdom of God, as Jesus says. So this is, this is the primary emphasis in the scriptures. This is the citizenship that's vital. Why? Because we are, why does Peter say this? He says it's because we're exiles. He wants us to remember, and it's hard, isn't it? It's hard in our country when there's been so much good done. I don't diminish any of that. You know, it, it, it really bugs me when people only talk about America's horrible past. Well, okay, yes, it's there. Pick a nation where it isn't. But all the good that we've done, too. But please understand, too, don't let that cloud your true ultimate citizenship is in glory. You are a holy nation. You know, I just couldn't help but think about, as Peter thinks about us as exiles and us as a holy nation, that we're citizens of this other country, you know, think about if you are an exile, a prisoner of war, let's say, in another country, right? And you're, you're a prisoner there, let's say under the Vietnamese, for instance. You're a prisoner there. It's not your home, you're an American citizen. And let's say you hear Russia's going to invade. Well, it might be concerning to you, right? Because maybe you know they're going to treat you worse. Maybe. But your concerns would be different, right, as an exile there than it would if you were a Vietnamese person. Right? Again, you, you might be concerned at how you were going to be treated personally. You'd probably be thinking, praying accordingly. But you wouldn't be afraid that the nation itself is going to fall under Russian rule, necessarily. And that may not be the best illustration, but I really want you to feel that identity of exile do you really believe that again doesn't mean we can't pray that the Lord continue to protect our freedoms in this country we pray that truckers are successful and what they're after and all that stuff but our fundamental identity our fundamental identity though if they're not successful is not moved it's not shaken at all actually we may be bracing ourselves for more you know Ridiculous ideas coming from the top, but it doesn't, it doesn't disturb our identity. We're a holy nation. We're a part of the kingdom of God. And that's the point I want to just convey, just more and more, growing into who you really are. You are exiles here. Please, please own that. All right. I'm just going to stop there. I'm not going to go into the next one, so all we dealt with was holy nation. But, man... These things are just so vital. They're, so, they're just so pervasive in the scriptures. Holiness is to characterize us. Um, just be careful on how you regard sin. Watch for your brothers and sisters. We're to be a holy people. And just know that you're citizens of a kingdom that will have no end. And that's just, man, it just doesn't get any, get any better than that. And why? Well, it's all because of what the Lord Jesus has done, Right? This is why we are who we are. The Lord Jesus himself, the king of the kingdom, has secured a people for the kingdom through the cross. And that's why we are who we are. And um, we just need to praise him for it. Let's pray together. Well, Father, I just pray that you would uh, take um, take these words, take this teaching, Lord, and just grind it into us that we would know who we are before you. Um, Lord, we certainly do thank you for where we live.
Um, Lord, we pray you'd preserve it. Lord, for really the sake of righteousness and the gospel, Lord, it's so grieving to see things tank in a way that's just, in some ways, just madness. Um, But on the other hand, Lord, we know that this was inevitable at some point. And we know that this does not uproot who we are in Christ. Um, It just helps us reflect on it maybe even clearer uh, that we are a holy nation to you. Lord, thank you for making us that. Thank you for um, bestowing on us a kingdom that will have no end. And Lord, perhaps there are people in this room this morning that are not a part of that kingdom yet. Um, Father, we just ask you that you would call them out of darkness into your marvelous light. That you would bring them into your kingdom. You'd save them from sin. You'd redeem them from slavery. And uh, transfer them into the kingdom of the, the Son of your love. And, uh, and Lord, just help us to be holy. Help us to regard sin like you regard it. Help us not to play around with it. Lord, if anyone's playing around with it in here, whatever it is, we just ask you, Father, that you would give them your perspective about it. You would show them the darkness of it, the blackness of it, the fact that that very sin is what drove your son to the cross. Lord, all of these things, and that would just grip all of our hearts. Um, But Lord, that we would be a holy people, a people who are full of love for you primarily, for our brethren, and for all people. And Lord, we know that as we do this, we fulfill the law. Um, we, we seek out what's best for others. So Lord, please work, and, um, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.